Welcome to episode 242 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you've been listening to Stageworthy for a while, or maybe you're a first-time listener and you're listening through a link that you got on the website or through social media, did you know that you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode? You can do that by searching for Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and clicking on the handy subscribe button. And that way, every week, the latest episode of Stageworthy will be delivered right to you. And if you subscribe, let me know that you're a new subscriber. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. And you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And the website where you can find the archive of all 242 episodes is at stageworthypodcast.com. My guest this week is Holly Brinkman. Holly is a storyteller and a theater creator currently operating out of Victoria, BC. Holly is the creator of this solo piece, A Woman's Guide to Peeing Outside, and one of the co-creators and performers of the hit fringe show, Pack Animals. So Holly, um, it, oh, actually, I guess you know, in Vancouver, you were saying, you know, and we will refer to this as the Lost Podcast. The nine, almost ten minutes that we've that we've that we've uh, uh, lost, they're lost to time and space. Um, that you've you've been back to teaching, um, and is is all of BC opening up again, or is it uh, specific to Vancouver? Uh, so I'm actually on Vancouver Island. I'm in Victoria, um, so I can't speak to like the, mm. the Vancouver. Um, public schools in in victoria on vancouver island where like the whole island is really fortunate we have a very very low transmission rate right now um and i think it's because we're on an island and you can only access vancouver island by ferry so um we're very isolated here um so that we've been really fortunate that way and i know that the island school districts have gone back um i believe that it's a a provincial decision for the schools to go back for the last three and a half weeks of, of the school year. That does seem like a very little amount of time to spend (laughs) in the classroom. It's almost, it almost seems not worth it, but, and yet it does is if I guess give both teachers and students a bit of a send off to this crazy school year. And it gives like, you know, I teach at a middle school and it gives our grade eights a chance to like have some of those we're graduating grade eight. We're moving on to grade. We're moving on to high school, like to have some of those conversations and like we get to celebrate them a little bit, um, which is really nice and gives the teachers a chance to see their students one more time before they move on to high school. Um, So I think it's great. And I mean, it's, it's also helpful for families and for parents too, I think for their kids to have this as an option. And so that's one of the things like it hasn't been mandated that all kids go back, but every student has been invited to come back for Mm -hmm. the next, for like very short periods of time, um, a couple of days a week. 
um, for the next three and a half weeks. Hmm. Yeah. Now, as the as the school year ends, now I th- I think normally you might be thinking about going on uh, and doing some fringe festivals. Yeah, normally. Uh, so last year I toured for four months with my tour partners. So I actually left teaching early last year. I was just working mm-hmm. as a sub um, last year, and we were gone from the beginning of May until the end of August. Um, I actually just like independent of the pandemic decided not to tour this summer because I'm working on finishing my master's. So I'll be finished my Mm. master's in December, but I had to take some courses over the summer. Um, So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to skip touring for one summer. I'm going to do it this summer. And then the pandemic happened. So it, in my very specific case, I'm, I haven't had any gigs canceled um, and I haven't been, Um, planning this huge trip and planning a new show um, for this, this summer. But the following one, I am hoping um, my show partner and I are hoping to write a sequel to our show and to tour it um, in 2021. So hopefully, hopefully that'll happen. (laughs) Here's hoping. Yeah. Uh, What, I mean, what cities did you do in four months? So we did almost as many as you can do in four months. So we started in Orlando, Florida, And then we went up to London, Ontario, and then we were in Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Edmonton. And Mm. then, um, and then my show partner did Vancouver, but I was back to teaching in September. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good run. Yeah, it was, uh, (laughs) we drove my little car the whole way. So we like drove from Vancouver, uh, like Victoria to Florida and then up to Florida and back across, we did 20 K 20,000 K in four months. Wow. Yeah. And you still plan on working together again. Oh yeah. We still get along really well. We still love each other. It's all, it's all happy in our like little show world. That's Um, so important. Yeah. (laughs) We say from the like four and a half months that we did that we had one and a half fights. Ooh, that's, you know, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We're good communicators. We're good at that's like good. Um, sort of heading things off before they get really ugly. Just being like, hey, this is really, really annoying. Can you stop doing that? And be like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything in particular that you learned touring for for all that time? Can you hear me now? I can. How frustrating. Okay. <laughs> this is going well. This is, this is a this good is, example of like is, why technology is sometimes the worst. Technology is often the worst. And you know what? <laughs> I'm keeping all of this in. I there's like except a, for the long except for the long pause because that's a, not great. Second <laughs> in the middle of the long pause where I thought that I thought it wasn't gonna work and I just go, This is just me screaming into the void. So you can Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> In a, in a way, it, it almost is just somebody <laughs> screaming into the void if there's nobody else there. Yeah. Like, hello. <sighs> okay. <laughs> um, I sometimes worry that, that because I, one of the, the quirks of my apartment is that um, it's not my internet. I share it with the person upstairs. Right. Because they couldn't tell me if there was actually a place to, to, to get my own down here. Hmm. Um, so I have to share it, which means that if there is an internet problem, I have to rely on somebody else to reset the modem or to, to call 
tech support or something. Which right. Is oh, that wonderful. is wonderful. Yeah. I, I'm in a similar situation. I live in a house with my sister and brother-in-law, so I have my suite downstairs and then they live upstairs and we share the share the internet. And I can definitely notice mm-hmm. times when like I don't know, they're streaming a show or like my brother-in-law's working from home right now, so his if he's on a Zoom meeting as well as me, then things can sometimes slow down. Um, but... Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that. This is the probably the 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 price of the pandemic is is the fact that everybody's using their home internet a lot more yeah. and really pushing it to its limit. Yeah. And like some, I know that some people are like pushing for um, the school district to reimburse some of the teachers for internet costs um, that they wouldn't normally have been using or. Um, it really yeah, should. It I know. Because really it's like I mean, they're saving so much money right now, the school districts, by having the kids and the teachers in distance learning that, mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) And also, like, in some cases, teachers had to buy webcams Mm -hmm. and things like that. There should definitely be some, it shouldn't just be like, oh, well, you had to do this thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think in some cases, classroom budgets were, uh, like, teachers were allowed to use, but it's like May and June, like, often teachers don't have a classroom budget left um, by May and June. Like they haven't, Mm. (laughs) it has been spent. Those budgets are small and they get used up really fast. So um, yeah, there's, it's definitely like part of the conversation that's, that's happening right now. Now, Holly, were you touring one show last summer or two? I was touring two shows. Um, So I was doing my solo show, which is called a woman's guide to peeing outside um and then my show partner and I have a show called Pack Animals and then they also had a solo show that they premiered in Saskatoon um called Something in the Water so between the two of us we were we were doing um three shows and then we also did a one night only of our Christmas special for Pack Animals so I guess technically we did four shows <laughs> You have a Christmas special from for one of your shows? Yeah. Our, so I have our, no idea how much I love that. <laughs> our comedy duo show, Pack Animals. Um, we wrote a whole new a whole new show and have different puppets and a different storyline and different songs and everything. Um, that's all Christmas themed. So the plan was to um in twenty twenty one to tour a brand new show, but I think um my show partner right now is stuck in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so we won't be writing anything new in the next four or five months. So we might end up having to tour the Christmas show, which is great. It's a wonderful show. Um, we might have to tour that in 2021 while developing like our more official um, sequel to Pack Animals. Look, if Peter and Chris can tour their Christmas show, you guys can tour your Christmas show. And like, and the Christmas show, it has some good meat and potatoes. Our kind of whole thing is um, like delivering political and um, like socially conscious material, but through comedy, through very like outrageous um, clown puppeteer musical comedy. Um, but the Christmas show isn't as sort of socially hard hitting as pack animals is. And it definitely isn't as socially hard hitting as we want the sequel to be. So, but I, I kind of feel like in 2021, 
people are going to want to see light and fluffy stuff. They're going to want to come out and see a Christmas special in July. So honestly, honestly, yeah. we're going to need that kind of stuff. To yeah. Be honest. And it's still got some After great the material. This in year it. is going. Yeah. yeah. It's still got it. Like it still says important things, um, mm. but it's pretty light, light and silly at the same time. Can I ask about two, like performing two shows at a fringe festival? Because I know, uh, in, in, in Toronto last year, you were doing both the Women's Guide to Peeing Outside and Pack Animals at the same time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is that, is, you know, I doing one show at a Fringe Festival is a bit of a, is, is, is exhausting. Um, what's it like doing two shows and how do you manage that? It was so exhausting. <laughs> it was like, and so I, I only did that in two um, at two of the festivals that we were at, I did it in London before and the London Fringe Festival um, scheduled my solo show and pack animals in the same venue. So often I, or not often, but I think three or four times I had like back to back shows where I do my solo show and then I do pack animals. And that Ouch. sounds like it would be exhausting, but it was kind of nice actually, because oh. I, I then still had the same number of days off. I still had, I think three or four full days off in London and it's like two hours of concentrated work yes I'm tired at the end of it but then you like go out and get food with your friends and go have a good night's sleep and um you're kind of ready to go the next day whereas in Toronto the two shows were in two separate venues um and I think they were trying not to overload me so they would they they had like scheduled I basically had a performance every single day for two weeks in Toronto and that was really exhausting. Um, and it just meant like doing two shows. It just means that like one of them kind of falls to the wayside. And for me, that's always my solo show because pack animals was created afterwards. And, um, we had a touring grant for pack animals. We were in a bigger venue in Toronto for pack animals than I was for my solo show. So there was like a big push from both of us and like a real desire from both of us to, um, like push and make that show a, a big success. Um, and then, so my solo show was kind of like whoever comes to it. Great. And as far as like flyering goes and that sort of stuff, pack animals and woman's guide were sharing one. So whoever got a pack animals flyer also got a woman's guide one. And I did fine in Toronto. I, I think I made a little bit of money. I, I definitely broke even, um, with my solo show and then pack animals did really well. So yeah, it's, it's, it feels weird because you, I love my solo show. I put a lot of heart and soul into creating it, but it kind of ended up playing second fiddle to pack animals. And that's a weird feeling as a, as like a creator to kind of have your shows like almost set up as a hierarchy. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like both shows are competing for your affection. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. It's like picking your favorite kid. <laughs> my, my show partner and I are always, um, we always refer to our shows as like our show babies. Um, and yeah, it definitely felt like sort of choosing my, my favorite show baby. Um, could I, uh, in terms of the, your, your solo show, a woman's guide to peeing outside. Um, I'm always curious about how solo performers actually do the creation on their shows as a solo performer myself. It's one of those things that I'm always like, let's compare notes sort of thing. I'm always really curious about, about 
the 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 method that people use. So what's what was your writing process like? Um so oh yeah, Woman's Guide has existed since um like I think I think I wrote it the first version of it, I think I wrote it five years ago. And so every time I remount it, it gets a little bit of a like a dusting off and a shaping up. Um so the first time I performed it and wrote it, I had um, help from the creative director of Impulse Theater here in Victoria, Andrew Barrett. Um, I hired him to kind of dramaturge it with me. So I wrote it and he helped me zhuzh it up because I I hadn't really written any theater before that. I hadn't written most of what I'd written was academic stuff. And when I sat down to write it, they're all store, it's personal storytelling. Um, and where they were stories that I've told at storytelling nights before, I'd never written them down. And when I wrote them down, their cadence changed and the tone of them changed and they fell into this very academic tone because that's what I'm used to sitting down and writing. Um, so he really helped me pick out those moments where we wanted that that academic tone and then the moments where we wanted it to be more informal and make those really conscious choices as opposed to just like kind of a muddy voice that wasn't super clear. Um, and he also helped me like pull out the comedy in it because writing jokes and writing comedy on your own is so hard. <laughs> it's like, I am not, I like write something down. And I'll be like, I think that's funny. Is that funny? I don't know if that's funny. <laughs> like, yeah. So he really helped me um, bring out the comedy of it. And, um, and then for this tour that I did last summer, I hired Kathleen Greenfield from um, Snafu Dance, which is like Ingrid Hansen who does mm -hmm. Little Orange Man. And th it's their company. So Kathleen right. is like a very talented director and clown in Victoria and um, I feel very fortunate to have her at my um, disposal that I was able to hire her. And she just really helped me kind of like tweak a couple of things and and bring out more of the like physicality and more of the clown in it this this time around. And while it is still like a stand and deliver storytelling show, it's got a lot more sort of like silly, absurd movement in it now which i really 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 enjoy and which like now in pack animals you can really see that that's like a an avenue that i'm more comfortable in than i was when i first wrote it hmm. yeah you mentioned that that when you started writing that you hadn't written before you did storytelling nights as you mentioned but like what is it that made you want to create a solo show having never written before um, I, before I performed at the Fringe Festivals, I worked for them for about five years. So I worked for the Montreal Fringe and I worked for the Victoria mm. Fringe. Um, and I had gotten to be really close friends with a bunch of the artists. And that's kind of where I started doing storytelling nights was from having done front of house and having done box office and that kind of, those kind of jobs with the Fringe. Um, Often, like, one of the socializing nights at the Victoria Fringe is a storytelling competition. So I started doing those um, and 
you know, you talk to these like amazing touring artists, like I think it was John Bennett was the first um, touring artist that I got to be really close friends with. And he was the one who said like, you should just do it. You should just write a show. You should just, just do it. And I was like, what do you For the record, mean, I heard that in an Australian it. accent. Yeah. I mean, in my head, I could hear it with my accent. And he's a very, like, kind of, can be kind of a deadpan um, character. And that just that look on his face, like, yeah, just do it. It's like very, um, it was very encouraging. And I kind of just thought, like, what have I got to lose? Um. So, what? Well- when you were when you were writing it and sort of like did did your director um, were you like working on it in concert with them like writing something and then trying it out or did you have to write it and then try it out with the director and uh, see what what worked and what was funny and all of that stuff what was what did that look like uh, I I basically yeah I sort of pitched the idea to Andrew and then. Um, like we set up a schedule and I wrote chunks of it and then we workshop them together and then I'd write other chunks and then we'd cut things apart. So he really did help me like, instead of me writing the whole thing and then him directing it from kind of a, like, this is a finished piece. Now let's direct it space. He was really more helping me, I would say dramaturge it to like move things around and actually like figure out, um, kind of figure out what the thread was and how we were going to, string it all together um because i have i'm like really good with ideas but then the like organizing them um i i really like rely on an outside voice for that like this is this is slightly unclear or what if you did you notice that these two things are connected and what if you like reordered that so that they made more sense together that kind of stuff Seems like a really smart way to work. I wish I'd done that. (laughs) (laughs) You asked what my process was and I kind of laughed because it was the first thing I'd ever written and I was really leaning quite heavily on Andrew in the creation of it. But he was always Mm. like very firm with me that like this is your piece. This is not the kind of art that I make when it's my art. So he just was pushing me to create and made me make all the decisions. But it was so helpful to have that like outside force um, forcing me to make decisions um, Mm -hmm. and to, to make it into something a lot better than I think it would have been if I just sat and stared at it um, (laughs) on my own. (laughs) Um, And I haven't written a solo piece since then. So I kind of like, I have some ideas, but like I, like I was saying before in the like, lost part of this podcast um that i just haven't been feeling very creative um since this pandemic so i i do have these sort of ideas percolating um but the energy to actually get them down um is not present at the moment (laughs) are you are you writing those ideas down so that you don't lose track of them yeah i mean i have um like a little, like a, a journal where I keep um, like my fragmented thoughts and ideas. Um, it, which seems a lot more organized than it actually is. But um, there's also like a heap of just random papers where I've written little things down. Um, but I have kind of like, there's one solo show idea that I've been um, 
thinking about for a really long time about my omas. So my family is like Dutch ancestry. Um, so I've been wanting to write um, a storytelling piece that's part storytelling, part like historical fiction where I like reimagine their lives at the same time as the stories that I'd be telling in my life. Um, mm. So I've been kind of the part of working on a new piece where you think about it for a really long time. That's the stage I'm at with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned not like not really doing a whole lot of performing of, of fringe shows or solo. Um, had before you started getting involved with fringe, did you ever have a, a desire to write a show or did that come out of exposure to fringe artists? I, I would definitely credit that almost entirely with fringe. I, um, like I don't have a theater background. I don't, I didn't go to school for theater. Um, I did a lot of theater in high school. Um, but when I went to college, I didn't, I didn't really do very much performance at all. So, um, I remember the first year that I did the fringe festival was in Montreal. I think it was 2012 and I had like just finished a work contract so I was on EI. I was living in Montreal. I was like subletting a friend's uh, bedroom in this like lovely apartment full of lovely humans. And um, it was just down the street from um, the like headquarters of the Montreal Fringe right on Rachel and St. Laurent. And I just volunteered for the Fringe Festival. Um, and I volunteered like a crazy a number of hours so I could get a super pass. And I just volunteered for the fringe and I saw, I think, I think I saw almost 30 shows that year. And I went to every 13th hour, like, oh my God, when did you sleep? I just, I didn't need to. It was summer in Montreal. I had just like, I had (laughs) cash in my pocket. I had a bed to sleep in and I had theater that needed watching. And I just like Mm. devoured the fringe festival that year. And then the following year I started to work for the Montreal fringe. So that was, I was just so inspired. I couldn't believe the grit and authenticity and the weirdness. I just loved, I just loved that. It was like theater I had never seen before. And I and think it, that Montreal's yeah, 13th hour is one of my favorite things in a fringe festival. Yeah. I would agree with that. It's like, and there's nothing else like it. There's like a special kind of magic about it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, And and too many, too few fringes have an evening program like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it is enough of a party that it is kind of uniquely Montreal. But there's something about it. I know. It's, yeah. And when Al LaFrance was hosting it, it was just gold. I just loved it so much. Did he only, I think he only, did he only host it one year? Or was he their, their host for a couple of years? I think he did it two years. years. The, his mm-hmm. last year doing it, I was stage managing the 13th hour that year. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the year that I opened A Woman's Guide to Peeing Outside at the Montreal Fringe. And so I was doing my show there and then I was stage managing the 13th hour. And it was, oh, it was so wonderful. I also did not <laughs> get very much sleep that year. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think you would have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could I ask you about your performer's origin story? Like, did you grow up wanting to perform? What, uh, like, what drove you to to get into theater at all? I'm always curious about the stories that that people have that that what made them want to do this. Yeah, I mean, I grew, I did grow up. Uh, so I grew up in like really, really rural 
um, BC. That's what my solo show is about. And um, I just, I don't know. My mom said that I always had a theatrical flair. I like in kindergarten, I was in the Christmas play and the play ended this is the story she always tells anyway. Um, and I got off the stage and she could tell I was just like glowing. I was just bouncing off the walls. She said they could barely get me off the stage after our like kindergarten piece was done. And she just asked me, she said, what do you like so much about being on the stage? And I just looked at her in that like five-year-old way and said, I go on the stage, everybody looks at me and smiles and then they all clap. And that was just to me like heaven. <laughs> and and so so sort of from there, I if you had asked me when I was 16, like what I was gonna be when I grew up, I was gonna I always said I was gonna be a movie star. Um and then I just got very quickly when I finished high school, very quickly disillusioned with um the like image centric nature of acting. And I didn't want to engage with it in any way, shape or form. I really didn't want my job to be what I looked like. And that was the mm. impression that I kept getting from, um, from acting in a professional way, um, out of Vancouver at, at like in 2004. Um, mm. so I just kind of like said, no way, I don't want this at all. And, um, and focused on academics and, um, went to McGill for history and just didn't, didn't really perform at all in those um, in those years, and then, <clears throat> um, yeah, and then I graduated and I did a bunch of different work contracts, and I still wasn't performing. And then it was that that summer that I um, volunteered for the Fringe Festival um, when I I saw a version of theater that I'd never seen before, which was personal, and it felt really authentic. And it felt really gritty and it felt a lot more like something I wanted to do. And I, the representation of bodies that I was seeing on the stage was so much more diverse than the rep representation of bodies I was seeing in, you know, theater or in um, like movies and TV at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I just felt like it was a, a much more welcoming place hmm. yeah i remember when i was in theater school and this is way back in the 19 and uh they we sort of had drilled into us that we must be neutral you know, yeah it was like yeah like a, that blank should, they should be able to look at you and be anything and i don't think they did us any favors because yeah. then it was like you walk into a room and you're kind of like porridge mm -hmm. you know and I, I think over time, people, there's been more, I think, of a be yourself because that's what they want to see because anything else is a lie. Yeah. You know, they'll cast, you know, they're going to cast based on you anyway. You know, if they like you, they'll use you. And I've seen, you know, people who've who've developed, you know, their unique look and and. I don't see many generic people and, and which is good. Yeah. Cause man, I was so bored thinking that like, Oh, so I can never have facial hair. I must always, you know, do my hair in a neutral way. I can never be unique. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I felt a lot of pressure to like 
be blonder and be thinner and kind of and that 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 image of like a you know 19 year old girl going into an audition surrounded by people who look exactly like her is just right. like well what <laughs> hmm. what how could I possibly ever stand out in that sea of sameness and also like how boring <laughs> um and I, I mean I will say like one of the things that drew me to fringe was its diversity and mm. and I wish that there were more diverse voices that are were being held up by the fringe festival I don't think that it's as um welcoming and as diverse a place as sometimes it's it's presented to be i know that mm -hmm. um artists of color have a lot of trouble on the fringe circuit and that's yeah. you know often um it's because of so many things there's so many like systemic barriers that make yeah. touring the fringe circuit and doing what my show partner and i did um really inaccessible to certain people and yeah. i wish and I, I'm trying really hard to find ways to make to make it seem and be a safer place for BIPOC and um, Indigenous people of color in Canada and North America Isn't as well. Be, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that that you you know you pick up and you go to various cities, and you're not sometimes those cities have are not as cosmopolitan, say, as a Vancouver or a Victoria or a, or a Toronto or Montreal. Sometimes I think you wonder what could the fringe do to, to make people of color uh, be able to succeed in their city that might have a resistance to, to people of color? How can you hold them up? How can you amplify their voices? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's things that you can do, like the flyering. Um system in quite a in like a number of Canadian cities is like not a safe system for people of color mm. to promote their shows through um so we need better ways of of doing that a lot of um the other white performers that I know we make a point of you know if we're going to shout out shows to only shout out shows of um people of, of the artists of color um, or to only shout out shows of artists of color or artists with disabilities or mm -hmm. um, because, or the artists that have barriers to being able to like be out on the street and passing out flyers mm -hmm. <laughs> um, with their faces on them to strangers as they go by. Cause that's not necessarily a safe um, form of, self-promotion for a lot of people mm. um and doing like a flyer share um but these are like such small things i think that the fringe festivals themselves and not necessarily the artists need to really look at like structurally what can they do and i that comes down to like hiring people of color to run the festivals yeah. and um, looking at those sorts of structures um I think is really important. as much as as much as artists can do and artists can do do some it, it shouldn't be entirely on the artist's shoulders no exactly to, yeah to to amplify those voices yeah that's not something that should be laid at the feet of 
of of of the artist and, um, and also of the, of the like city mayors because if you look at festivals like mm. edmonton i mean that the fringe festival brings so much money into that city so mm. the the like town the government of edmonton needs to do big systemic things to to yeah. to make that a safer place for artists of color to be in and, and indigenous artists to be um because of how important those festivals are economically to that region. Yeah. 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 Were there, I mean, are there, I mean, this is, this is sort of like a little bit away from where we were going. Are there shows that have, that when you think of, of fringe shows that you've seen in the past that, that impacted you, that you still think about today moments even in the shows that sort of like you look at as this is what I want to do when I create a fringe show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember I saw, um, I can't remember what it was called now, but the artist Cameron Moore, she created, um, the smut slam series. So Mm -hmm. like any of the smut slam, uh, storytelling nights. Um, she also does performance. So what was her show called? It was like a, a sexual choose your own adventure. Um, Mm -hmm. and, the audience chose what stories she told and how she told them and what um, clothes she was wearing or not wearing while she told them. <laughs> um, and that show just like blew my mind and was so incredible um, and has stuck with me for a really long time. Um, what else? A Little Orange Man um, mm. by Ingrid Hansen and Snafu Dance. Um, Ingrid, mm. I'm now very fortunate to count as a close friend and she's just so talented and that show is has such like heart and it's so weird and I just it like it just gets me in the feels every time um that show has one of the only instances of 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 audience participation that I have literally watched audience members falling over each other yeah to participate at the end of that show yeah it's so beautiful oh yeah and then um last year some victoria artists um they're the company called rage sweater they were touring two shows monica versus the internet and Mm -hmm. they won calf last year and um Mm -hmm. their social justice cabaret lub dub and i saw their cabaret because we were on the same sort of circuit as them most of the summer. Mm-hmm. I think I saw it three times. And it changed every time in, in every city that we were in. And even like the nights that they were doing it. And it was so, like the Lub Dub Cabaret was so joyful and unapologetic and beautiful and like angry but and had such power behind it and it really the way that it grew and changed over the summer was a really beautiful thing and there are some moments that are very hard to to describe that i just that like visually and energetically have like stuck in my brain in a very like mm. visceral way um that i think is the the, the performers um of that monica ogden and um Oh, and then, yeah, is like, they're just so amazing. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, it's a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful piece. So that one's definitely stuck with me um, mm-hmm. quite a bit. And every year there's like incredible stuff that that sort of gets into you a bit. 
that is the magic of the fringe in mm-hmm. a way that that other festivals don't have is that you never quite know what's what's going to hit what magical thing will be there yeah and there's always something that you don't really have any expectations about or you don't really know anything about um there was this one piece at the Edmonton Fringe last year called St. Kilda. Um, that was incredible. It was like this live recorded looped soundscape storytelling. It was creepy. Um, and it I had no preconceived notions of what it was going into it. It was just one where I like had time. I slotted into my schedule. I went and saw it. And I just could not believe like it was a it was a full body, like immersive experience. And it was um it was such a wonderful surprise for me. So I, I always think that that's kind of the magic of, of fringe is that you can like just walk in and you can sit through anything for an hour (laughs) and it might be life changing. That's the thing is that, is that fringe gives you the opportunity to take a risk because it's also for one thing, it's like $12. Yeah. And second of all, it's only an hour. So like, even yeah, if you're hating it, yes, like you can sit through an hour or like a lot of them are 45 or 55 minutes. Yeah. Like, and then if like, I forget who says it. I think it might be John Bennett after his show. He says like, um, if you see a show that you loved, you tell like six people, if you see a show that you, hated you talk about it for years to thousands of people that is so sadly true (laughs) and it's just like it's i think as fringe artists when we are on tour and we see so many things like we probably see hundreds Mm -hmm. of shows every tour season um we kind of love those shows that we hate that you get (laughs) sat through and you're like oh it was bad and you like sit through it and you kind of love it that like i saw something that is not something I would ever make or watch again. Uh, and then like be really stoked by having that, that chance. But you also have that, that shared experience with whoever you went with mm-hmm. or that audience. Yeah. And you get to, you get to talk about it yeah. for, you know, the whole tour. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so great. And I mean, the, the people you meet along the way is uh, just so incredible. Like I was, chatting with Carlin Ramey, who was the one who like put my name on your call out um, for Mm -hmm. podcast people. And we were both just lamenting how, even though I was planning on taking the summer off, I was still planning to come and visit a couple of the fringe festivals and still see my community. And Mm. like our community has never felt more far apart from each other than we do now, because even when you're in the same province or in the same city as people that you love and respect and want to work with and want to see art that they're creating. We're not having the opportunity to do that right now. And um, I think a lot of us are feeling really, really alone and really, really, really far away from each other, Um, which is like, usually we have the, we have the four months of the summer to look forward to. And uh, now we don't. We should be (laughs) be gearing, we should be gearing up to that now. Yeah. I mean, like in the middle of performing and like Facebook is such an, asshole sometimes because can i say that i said that um yes, because yeah, they like say that, yeah. they send um your memories from a year ago like oh what were you doing God. a year ago and you're like don't tell me that oh. yes i know i was in florida like <laughs> stop it oh thank you facebook yeah 
You're like, yeah, I know my life was up a lot better a year ago. Thanks, Facebook. <laughs> I mean, I feel that way when it shows me a picture of me at a restaurant right now. Yeah. But, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, out doing anything. Totally. Because are you, you're in Toronto, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So things are still really like locked down there, hey? Pretty much, yeah. Because yeah, things have I mean, started opening up here. We've like, mm. I, I like have had a haircut and went out to a pub <gasps> for dinner. Um, oh, my that, God. That was really yeah. nice. Everybody's just like grinning at each other from their tables that are spaced six feet away. Oh my God. This would be so weird because we're all going to be so happy to go to restaurants when it happens that that's going to be us in Toronto where we don't look or talk to each other. Yeah. And like I was at a pub and it was wing night and normally like people get real drunk real fast on wing nights and you're like annoyed by their loud drunken conversation. And I found it so quaint. (laughs) I was like, oh, people getting drunk out in public. Ain't that quaint. Yeah, no, we're still we're still pretty locked down. It's just no restaurants are open. The stores that are open, it's curb service. Right. Yeah. You order ahead and you pick it up and that sort of thing. And yeah. So it's uh we're still I mean it's still super important and I, I just worry that on the island things are really good right now and I'm yeah. I worry that people are um like kind of taking that a little bit too confidently being like well yeah. like transmission lights are super low on the island and like that, i can just do it live my life and you're like well no, yeah, no. i mean you still, it's still need we to... still have to be very careful yeah, yeah we still have to be careful because you know if we start i mean we had people here who were like going to their parents place on mother's day mm-hmm. and then we saw a spike after that so like we it's it's hard and it's so much harder as the weather gets warmer to yeah people like distancing yeah and that's where we're so lucky here too like on the island there are so many places you can go outside that they even the ones that get kind of crowded they're not crowded Mm. people are still well Mm. well far apart from each other and able to to keep a pretty solid distance so yeah i before the pandemic sometimes felt too isolated living on an island that only is accessed by a ferry um and now i'm i'm pretty grateful for it um mm-hmm. and like feeling pretty um well situated to kind of ride this out um would you yeah. consider creating digital theater at this point is this something that that you're that you're mulling over um i don't know I I don't think so. I mean, mm. that kind of goes back to that story of my mom saying that they all look at me and then they clap. Is I, you don't get that same energy transfer from online theater. And I have things I want to create, but I want to be able to like hear people breathing and shifting in their seats. And I want to be able to make mm-hmm. eye contact with them while I'm performing it. And I want to like there to be an organic nature you know, whenever you're doing a solo show, there's things that change depending on how mm-hmm. your audience reacts. And I, that's some of my favorite parts of creating art is like wondering what parts are going to change because the, of how the audience reacts to them and to not have that. I don't know. I, mean, I don't want to say like, absolutely not, but it's definitely something that I really struggle with trying to find like a reason why why I would want to do it yeah yeah because it is a different discipline because of that like because you don't have 
that audience reaction mm-hmm. because you can't see them. It is almost like it's not quite television. Yeah, it's not quite theater. And I have loads of friends who are like are into like video editing and sound editing and graphic design, and so they can make these like weird little Franken videos with cool angles and um, can kind of throw stuff together. And that's never been something that I really got all jazzed up about and maybe i would if i played around with it a little bit more but mm-hmm. um right now i'm i mean i'm I'm working almost full time and i'm yeah. doing my master's so i'm kind of like i'm using up a lot of my energy that i would normally have mm-hmm. for for creation could i ask what you're doing your master's in yeah i'm uh, i'm doing my master's in educational psychology with a focus on special education so oh, nice. I, I spend a lot of time like thinking about how to support our most vulnerable and complex learners which mm. yeah has been really interesting and has been a fairly tedious but also really interesting process as we go through the pandemic to to see mm. the different needs um as they arise for students and the different like shifting um yeah needs needs from compact complex learners has been really really interesting are there things that you've know that you've learned and seen through your masters that uh are things that you're thinking about in informing the theater that you create absolutely yeah um i like i've been thinking a lot more about how to make um the theater that i create accessible to diverse minds um i did my solo show in toronto i did a relaxed performance of it and um that was a really interesting process i think if i was going to be creating something new a new solo show then i would create it with the sort of like guidelines for a relaxed performance in mind so that every time i perform it it could be performed in that way um And just sort of like thinking about, you know, personal storytelling is kind of a mapping of your personal successes and failures. And just in creating that, it has like forced me to look at my own privilege um, a lot more closely and to think about, um, yeah, ways that I can make my art more accessible um and so that i'm not making art only for people who look and create like me yeah which has been interesting Hmm. holly thank you so much for for talking with me today yeah absolutely phil it was lovely This has been a Homebody Productions production.